be rather nice if you did have the Bible tonight and read because this is a, read Psalm 109. This is a psalm of a very angry man. And it'd be good to be absolutely sure that this comes straight from the Word of God. It says there, page 552. God of my praise, do not be silent. For wicked and deceitful mouths open against me. They speak against me with lying tongues. They surround me with hateful words and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I continue to pray. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked person over them. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's judged, let him be found guilty. And let his prayer be counted as sin. Let his days be few. Let another take over his position. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander as beggars searching for food from their, and from their, far from their demolished homes. Let a creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder what he's worked for. Let no one show him kindness and no one be gracious to his fatherless children. Let the line of his descendants be cut off. Let their name be blotted out in the next generation. Let his ancestors' guilt be remembered before the Lord. And do not let his mother's sin be blotted out. Let their sins always remain before the Lord. And let him erase all memory of them from the earth. For he did not think to show kindness, but pursued the afflicted, poor and broken-hearted, in order to put them to death. He loved cursing. Let it fall on him. He took no delight in blessing. Let it be far from him. He wore cursing like his coat. Let it enter his body like water and go into his bones like oil. Let it be like a robe he wraps around himself, like a belt he always wears. Let this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil against me. But you, Yahweh, my Lord, deal kindly with me. Because of your name, deliver me. Because of the goodness of your faithful love. For I'm afflicted and needy. My heart is wounded within me. I fade away like a lengthening shadow. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak from fasting and my body is emaciated. I've become an object of ridicule to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads in scorn. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your faithful love, so they may know that this is your hand and that you, Lord, have done it. Though they curse, you will bless. When they rise up, they will be put to shame, but your servant will rejoice. My accusers will be clothed with disgrace, they will wear their shame like a cloak. I will fervently thank the Lord with my mouth. I will praise him in the presence of many, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who would condemn him. And turning to 3 John, John's third letter, over on page 1123. third letter of John. 
the elder to my dear friend Gaius. I love you in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may prosper in every way and be in good health physically, just as you are spiritually. For I was very glad when some brothers came and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, how you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are showing faithfulness to whoever, to whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they're strangers. They've testified to your love in front of the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we can be co-workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive us. This is why if I come, I will remind him of the work he is doing, slandering with malicious words. And he's not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome the brothers himself, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also testify for him. And you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write to you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be with you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends in my name. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Peter. Um, it's great to be back with you guys for a second week in a row. Uh, if you weren't here last week, um, my name's Tim. Uh, as Andy said, uh, I'm one of the student ministers here at Church by the Bridge. Uh, I'm usually associated with the 5 p.m. service, uh, but it's great that you guys could have me again this week. Um, before we uh, get stuck into 3 John, uh, please join with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we come to your word we pray that you would uh, calm our hearts, you would calm our minds. Pray that you would send your spirit to illuminate your scriptures. Pray that we'd be encouraged and pray that we'd live to bring you glory and honour through our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I have a dream. I have a dream of seeing churches overflow with people who are hungry to devour God's word. I have a dream of businessmen and businesswomen so captivated by the gospel that they, they meet together to strategize how they can use their resources to advance the proclamation of Jesus. I have a dream of uni students meeting on their campuses to marvel at the salvation which Jesus has won for them. I have a dream that the retired amongst us 
would use their retirement, would use their wealth, would use their time to share the good news of Jesus with their friends and encourage the younger generations. I have a dream of radical generosity that leads to a radical revival. Well, these are the dreams of John Reinhardt, the author of this book, Gospel Patrons. And this book contains many stories of people who have been radically generous to support the good news of Jesus. But these dreams are not just John's dreams. These dreams, they're my dreams. These dreams are the dreams of John, the author of 3 John. And if you're a Christian here tonight, I hope these are your dreams as well. I hope that we are Christians who want to be radically generous to see a radical revival. Well, tonight we're going to look uh, at 3 John uh, and we'll see two characters. Uh, We will look at uh, a famous co-worker who shares these dreams for radical revival. And we'll also see an infamous no-worker who doesn't. And it's my prayer that by the end of tonight, that, that we would learn from these two men about what it looks like to radically support the gospel. We will learn of the joys and the pitfalls of the proclamation of Jesus. So first, let's consider the famous co-worker. And this is John's good friend, Gaius. Gaius is a famous co-worker in the truth. Have a look at verse 3 with me, where John says, For I was very glad when some brothers came and testified to your faithfulness to the truth. Now, the truth that John's referring to here and has been referring to in all his letters uh, is the truth that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that Jesus Christ was hung up on a Roman cross and died for our sins, and that Jesus Christ rose, conquering Satan's sin and death. That's the truth that Gaius is faithful, uh, famous for and faithful in following. And I think this is really cool because, sorry, that's me. Um, I think this is really cool because people have come to Gaius's church and they see him living out this truth and they go back to John, who's back in Ephesus at the mothership, and they go back to John and they, they report how faithful Gaius has been to the truth. And if you look at verses 5 and 6, you'll see how they can see Gaius' faithfulness. Have a look, verse 5. Dear friend, you are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they are strangers. They, that's the brothers and the strangers, have testified to your love in front of the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, Gaius's faithfulness to the truth is, is evident to everybody through his support 
of these brothers, even brothers that he, he doesn't know. Um, but these are, no, these are no random Christians. Uh, these are proclaimers of the good news of Jesus, as verse 7 says. H- have a look at it with me. Um, John says, um, they, that's referring to the brothers and, and the strangers, um, they set out for the sake of the name. Now, if you look at the name there, you'll see it's in, in capitals. It starts with a capital N. And the name that John is referring to is the name of Jesus, uh, the only name. And so John is saying that Gaius is famous for being faithful because he supports Christian workers who proclaim the name. And in this day and age, uh, Gaius's support would have been uh, extensive. It would have been radical. Uh, he, he would have given up uh, a room in his house, most likely his room, uh, for these people to sleep in. Uh, he would have given up food and, and water at his own expense. Uh, he would have given them clothing if they needed that. And then he would have sent them on their way uh, with provisions, both food, water, and potentially financial provisions as they go on their way. He showed radical generosity to these Christian workers. And John writes to him in 3 John, the reason John writes is to encourage Gaius to keep doing this for a guy called Demetrius, which he refers to in verse 12. But what what hit me this week uh, from from this verse particularly, verse 7, is that John says that these proclaimers of the truth, they accepted nothing from the pagans. You see it there at the end of verse 7. They accepted nothing from the pagans. And what hit me is the pagans that he's referring to are non-believers, non-Christians. And what hit me was that for the gospel to go forth, people who don't believe the gospel, they're not the ones who will support. They're not the ones who will support its advancement. The only people that will support the advancement of the gospel are people who believe the gospel, members of the truth. Now, now this struck me this week that it's people like me, it's, it's people like you, who are the ones who are going to support the gospel. If we stop supporting, the gospel will stop going out. And this is why in verse 8, next verse, John says, Therefore... We ought to support such men, they are the preachers of Jesus, so that we can be co-workers with the truth. Now, John uses very strong language in verse 8. When he says we ought to support, it's like uh, we must, must, must support such men. We must support people who do gospel work. And the cool thing that, that struck me in this verse is that John doesn't elevate the preachers of Jesus to a higher position and put the supporters down here as a low position. There's, in John's eyes, there's, there's no distinction. Do, do you see in the second half of that verse, he says, so that we can be co-workers, so that we can be equals. There, there's no distinction between the preachers of the gospel and those who support the gospel, whether it be financial or through hospitality or through prayer. That they are, they are co-workers 
together with the truth. And as I was thinking about this, it struck me. As we give money here at church, as we give money to the support of the gospel, we're co-workers with Paul. Uh, We're co-workers with Andy. Uh, We're co-workers with Dan and Simon as we support the work of the gospel. They, They are not greater than us in one sense, but we together are co-workers in the support of the gospel. Well, I was reading, I was reading this book uh, this week as I was preparing for this sermon, and as I said, it's full of stories of, of famous co-workers uh, for the gospel. And uh, one story that I came across was about a guy called Henry, uh, Humphrey Monmouth. Now, hands up, who's heard of Humphrey Monmouth? Oh, we have a couple of people. This is really awkward. In the other services, no one knew who they were. And Okay, that's... Uh, he's got the book. Oh, gee, got the book. All right, well, uh, I won't let you explain who he is. I'll keep explaining who he is because I'll, I'll probably get it wrong. Um, but um, Monmouth, he, he was a guy who lived in England in the 1500s. In the 1500s. And he was a wealthy businessman. Uh, he was a merchant who, who traded throughout England and the Mediterranean. And, and in this day and age, in the day and age that he lived in the 1500s, the Bible that we have here in English was only in Latin. It was only in Latin. It wasn't in the common tongue of, of, of the regular person. And uh, because the church and the state back then were so intertwined, They actually didn't want to get it. They didn't want the Bible to get out of Latin because if it was only in Latin, they had control and power over what it said and they didn't want the common person to be able to read it. And so they had instituted laws that made it illegal to translate the Bible from Latin or Greek into English. And and, and these laws would get you locked up in jail, could even get you killed. And Humphrey Monmouth, He was a man gripped by the gospel. He was a Christian who who desperately wanted to see people meet Jesus. And so he had a business meeting with a guy called William Tyndale. Now, hands up, who's heard of William Tyndale? Okay, a lot more hands. That's much better. Um, They had a business meeting. It was a really cool business meeting. I'd love to be a part of it. Uh, It was in a pub. Um, they, They met and they ate sausages, and they drank beer, and they plotted how they were going to translate the Bible into English. And and what Monmouth did is he basically said to Tyndale, I will support you in your translation of the Bible. I will bring you into my house. I will protect you from the authorities. I will pay you a stipend. I will give you food. I will protect you. And he did that. And so as Tyndale worked, he, he translated the Bible. But then Monmouth went further. And what he did is he paid for Tyndale to go to Europe to get the Bible printed at Wittenberg, get it printed. And then he used his private fleet of merchant ships to smuggle. And this is illegal. It's like smuggling drugs across countries. He used his, his private fleet of merchant ships to smuggle the Bible throughout England so that the common man could read the Scriptures in his own language. 
and the impact of Monmouth's generosity is immeasurable. Within two years, King James commissioned an English translation based on Tyndale's work, which we know as the King James Bible. And this Bible became so influential, it influenced and changed the lives of countless people in the English-speaking world. It influenced the likes of George Washington, Billy Graham, even Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech were influenced by Tyndale's work. And all this was made possible because of the radical generosity of Humphrey Monmouth. Monmouth understood that as a Christian, he ought to support the spread of the gospel. Monmouth, like Gaius, is a famous co-worker in the truth. As I was reflecting on that story, I was, I was thinking about it, and I was convicted on, on one level, but then I sort of realized that in my own life, there are so many things that stop me from, from being generous like this. Now, I'm not sure what, what stops you guys. I don't know your hearts. But, but what I do know is I do know what stopped Diotrephes. I do know what stopped Diotrephes from supporting the truth. And this brings me to my second point, the infamous no-worker. Have a look with me at verses 9 and 10. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, did not receive us. This is why, if I come... I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome the brothers himself, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. John here, he depicts Diotrephes as a selfish, slandering, controlling leader. Have a look at verse 9. He says, he loved to have first place amongst them. This is another way of saying he liked to put himself first, or he wanted to preach and teach each week, or he wanted the supremacy and the power. Diotrephes was not a servant of others. Diotrephes was a servant of self. And his self-love, it erupts in antisocial behavior of slander and autocratic control. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I I know myself that self-love is a common pitfall that I fall into when it comes to be generous. I was reading this week uh, a book by Francis Chan and I think he, he captures this idea perfectly when he says this. He says, 
I thought I was doing a good job at supporting gospel work because the bones that I tossed at God had more meat on them than the bones that other people threw. So I figured I was doing fine until I realized that I was merely throwing bones at God. All he was getting was my leftovers, my scraps. Now, as I I look back on my life, these words, they stung. Too often, God got my leftovers. That is, if there were any leftovers for him to have. Too often, I put myself first. Now, friends, I don't know about yourselves, but self-love, it is a pitfall for radical generosity. And this is why I believe that John has included Diotrephes as an example of self-love and as a warning to us all about the dangers of self-love. Now, I could, uh, I could end the sermon here. I could end the sermon with the application of, now, go out, try harder, give more money, and love yourselves less. I could end like that. But if I ended like that, I, I can imagine we, we would all leave feeling guilty, feeling joyless, and feeling burdened. Because we each know deep down that we'll we'll fail. No no matter how hard we try or no matter how much we give, we know that we we, we love ourselves so much more than we love the proclamation of the truth. Uh, We all share this problem. I have this problem. We have this problem. So how how do we overcome this problem of self-love? Well, the answer is we love someone greater than ourselves. This brings me to point three. Love is what motivates radical generosity. Now, as Peter read uh, 3 John for us, did you see that Gaius, he was not motivated Uh, by guilt or by pride or by by self-love. The people who reported back to John in verse 3 and verse 6, the people who who made Gaius famous, they they didn't talk about his guilt or his pride or his self-love. They just talked about his faithfulness to the truth and his love for other people. And, 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 And Gaius' desire to support gospel workers, Gaius' desire to support Christians... Uh, comes from his love for the truth. And friends, as we talked about at the beginning, the truth, it's it's not an idea. Uh, The truth, it's not an ideal. But friends, the truth, it's an individual. The truth is the person of Jesus Christ. Gaius' 
motivation to be radically generous comes from the fact that he understood that Jesus was radically generous to him. Uh, Jesus' radical generosity was not financial. Uh, Jesus' radical generosity was not hospitality. Jesus' radical generosity was that he gave his life for Gaius. This is what motivates Gaius to be radically generous. I want to end tonight uh, with another story um, about someone who understands Jesus' radically, radical generosity to them. Um, and uh, the story involves uh, one of my best mates at, at, at Moore College, at Bible College, um, and his name's Gladwin. Now, Gladwin's not a common Aussie name. Uh, Gladwin is uh, from New Delhi in India. Um, Gladwin's from a, a middle-class family over there, uh, and he's 27 years old, hasn't got any savings, um, and there's no way that him and his family would be able to uh, pay for him to come and study at Moore College. Um, basically, rough living costs, uh, accommodation and uh, tuition is around $50,000 a year is what it costs. But Gladwin is studying at Moore College. Uh, he's studying at Moore College because uh, someone has grasped that Jesus has been radically generous to them. And so someone, a businessman who works just across the harbour in the city, is putting up $50,000 a year for four years so that Gladwin can go through Bible college. Now, this businessman, he will not see a cent of that $200,000 come back to him. In worldly terms, it seems like a terrible investment. But to this businessman, Gladwin is a great investment. Gladwin's a great investment because he knows that at the end of next year, Gladwin will go back to New Delhi and he will work in a church. He will tell people about Jesus. He will train people up to tell people about Jesus. And he knows that his $200,000 is supporting the forward movement of the gospel in a radically changing country such as India. For this businessman, his radical generosity was a great investment. For this businessman, he was motivated by the radical generosity of Jesus. So friends, do you have a dream? Is it a dream for self-love? Or do you dream of joining the ranks of famous co-workers who radically support the advancement of the good news of Jesus? What's your dream? Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for examples such as Gaius, as a, a famous co-worker, 
We thank you that he was so gripped by your radical generosity to him through your son's death that it's led him to be radically generous. Lord, we pray that we would be people who are gripped in the same way. We pray that we'd be people who radically use our time, our money, our houses uh, to radically support the gospel. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would do these things for your glory. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.